This morning we take a break from our series through the book of Acts, which has plenty to say about living in the power of Christ's resurrection. We take a break from that and look at the Gospel of John. Our sermon will focus on verses 25 to 27, but we'll go ahead and read verses 17 to 27. So, of course, to set the context, is a story of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had grown sick. Jesus delayed in returning to him. Before he got there, he had died. And he did so for a deliberate purpose, to reveal his power as the resurrection and the life, not just for Lazarus, but for all who would believe in him. So then we'll read from John chapter 11, beginning at verse 17, down to verse 27. I remind you that these are the inspired, infallible, and the inerrant words of the living God. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Thus far, God's word of life to us today. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for our risen Savior, who is alive even now, who speaks to us now through his word. Indeed, by his spirit, even as he spoke these words to Mary, oh, even as he spoke the words, Lazarus, come forth in days of old. So he continues to speak now through your weak servant to encourage your people, to lift them from the depths and discouragement of death to the joy of life. May, Lord, we know that. And may we receive these things by faith as we hear your word today. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the smartest philosophers in the 20th century was a man named Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a man I had to read because I was a philosophy major. He's very sharp, but very technical, very hard to read. But he was a brilliant man as far as the machinery of his mind worked. But there's something you'll find when you consider some of the smartest people in the world. Although the machinery of their mind works very, very well. They're very sharp and very quick and able to think complex thoughts. At the root bottom of their philosophy is contradiction, hopelessness, and ultimately despair. You know why? Because the smartest philosophers all too often try to construct a view of life that is without hope and without God in the world. And that's what Bertrand Russell did. And if he had a message to proclaim to you on Easter, this is what it would be. And here I quote Bertrand Russell. And again, I thank another minister. His name's Lane Tipton. He read this quote for his Easter sermon, so I'm stealing it from Lane. This is what Bertrand Russell said as his Easter message to the world. 
that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs, these things are all but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy that rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. How's that sound? Well... In Bertrand Russell's loquacious verbosity and his eloquence and intelligence is buried something that the Apostle Paul says much more plainly. If it is only in this life that we have hope in Christ, we have all men the most to be pitied. I think I prefer Paul to Russell. But Bertrand Russell was at least right about this, that apart from God, in a materialistic universe, in which, as he says, all that we are and all that we accomplish is but the accidental collocations of atoms, what do you have? Unyielding despair. Now, it's interesting that he thinks that unyielding despair can be a firm foundation for anything. Ah, we begin to see the fundamental contradiction at the bottom of any non-Christian viewpoint. See, Russell reminds us of this great contrast, this great antithesis between the Christian view of things and the non-Christian view of things. At bottom, one is a viewpoint of hope and life, and the other is one of unyielding despair. Well, today I proclaim to you that Russell, as bright as he was, was wrong. I proclaim to you a message from the words of Jesus that, yes, in our sin and apart from God, we have nothing but unyielding despair. But in him, we have hope. Why? Well, it's because of these words that he utters in John chapter 11, verse 25. Although our world is filled with sin and death, Jesus is coming to that world and he has proclaimed, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's what Jesus is for us. That's what Jesus has done for us. And that's what Jesus proclaims to us. And he calls us, as he calls Martha here in this passage, to believe it and to embrace it. That's the subject of our sermon this morning, the statement that Jesus makes, I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to meditate upon it, looking at it in the context, but in a more general way. We'll consider these things. First of all, we'll consider the need we have for someone to be our resurrection and our life. 
Secondly, we'll see how Jesus is the resurrection and the life insofar as he's eternal God, but also our incarnate Savior. And then finally, we'll see how this power and this hope of resurrection can become ours by faith. So let's consider those three things today. First of all, it's pretty clear in the passage and in our own lives that we have a great need for someone to be for us resurrection and the life. Bertrand Russell was a great logician, meaning he was an expert at logic. And simple logic teaches us this fact. Because all we need to do is open our eyes, as Russell was able to do, and see that all that we really have in this universe is despair and death. It's an observable fact. You can go out and not even look at the human kingdom, as it were. Just look at the animal kingdom, and what do you see? You see violence and suffering and ultimately death. It's true of the plants. It's true of the animals. It's true of every part of this creation under the curse because of sin. We have death, and we have suffering, and we have misery. That's what's true of this life. Again, Russell refers to it as the accidental collocations of atoms, which isn't ultimately true because, of course, it's all under the plan of God. But again, what is true because of sin? It's that there's change and decay. The atoms that constitute our bodies decay and become dust again. Again, as Genesis says it, dust we are and to dust we will return. That's not the absolute truth of the universe. It's what's true because of human sin. Have you noticed that in your life? What's the one constant in human life because of sin? It's change and decay. So this is one of the first things that really hits you in your human life. When you're a kid, everything seems very stable. Your family is stable. You have cousins. You have grandparents. You have a little world that you live in, and it seems like it's never going to change. But then suddenly it does. Suddenly, maybe you go to a new school. Suddenly, maybe your, your friends move away. Maybe a grandparent dies, and suddenly you realize, oh, things will change. And then as you become adults, so it is you have a family. You have children, and it seems like these children will always be in your home, and then one by one they grow up and start to leave. Change, decay. This slow march and process that all of us are on towards our ultimate end. Or as the hymn writer says, change and decay in all around I see. But he has hope, doesn't he? He has hope in the God. O God who changes not, abide with me. You see, this is the clear problem that no one can contradict. We're all headed to death. Now, why that is, that's up for dispute, and the Bible gives a clear reason. It's because of our sin. It's because that we inside, in our hearts, we have death within us because we're infected with the seed of death that comes from our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. And isn't that graphically illustrated here in Lazarus? Lazarus, Jesus' friend whom he loved, even he too was subject to death. They laid him in the tomb, and when Jesus drew near... Again, what does it, the text tell us? When Jesus says, take away the stone, later in the passage, some object. Indeed, Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And everything connected to this, the decay of his body, the grief, the mourning, the sorrow, the pain that they all experience, it's but a small taste of what's true of all of us throughout our lives. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't give us joys and blessings. He sure does. He's a creator, and he's good, and we have testimonies of that grace as his people everywhere we look. But in this life, there's never a time when those blessings aren't intermixed with some miseries. 
Anytime there's a sweet blessing, there is some bitterness mixed in it. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Why? It's because of our sin, which leads to death. We have a sinful, dead soul that's alienated from God that doesn't desire Him or want Him. And we have a body that's infected with death that slowly will decay and eventually end up in the grave. We see these things, not just here in John 11, we see it in our lives. Indeed, look out at the world, the things that you hear about in the news, people entering schools and shooting people, shooting children randomly, or other kinds of acts of violence. It breaks your heart, and it causes you to wonder, where does all these things come from? Well, the answer is clear. It comes from evil, not just in the heart of a few people, but in the heart of all of us. Well, into this world of death and sin, doomed to destruction, what has God done? Well, by his grace, he sent a savior. He sent a savior into a life of darkness, decay, and death. And what does that savior proclaim? He proclaims in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. How is that true? How is that true for us? Well, that's the second point. When we consider Jesus, who is for us the resurrection and the life. And there's two ways this is true. First, we'll see it as he's eternal God, the source of life but then also as our incarnate Savior, as the one who's obtained resurrection for us. But let's be clear, first of all, that the ultimate reason Jesus can say this, I am the resurrection and the life, is because he is God. God alone is the source of life. The Bible says that God is love. That means if you are going to love and experience love, the only place you're going to find that as a solid foundation is in the Lord. It doesn't come from you, because what do you have in you? You have sin and evil. You can't get the purity of love out of an impure source. It has to come from God. The same thing is true of life. God alone is life. We have no life in us. If we are to have any life, it can only come from God. If you liken life and being and existence to a stream or a river, God is the only fountain or source from which it can spring. As our confession of faith says, I think beautifully, that God alone is the foundation of all being or life, existence, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. Well, guess what John tells us early in this gospel? That Jesus is this God, that he is the source of life and light. That's why he can say, I am the resurrection and the life, because he's the eternal God in whom these things find their origin. If you turn back to the prologue of John's gospel in John chapter 1, he states this quite beautifully, poetically and eloquently. Indeed, I'd rather listen to this than Mr. Russell's poetry. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Then verse 4, in him was what? Life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the Word. He's the Logos. And what is in Him? Prior to the universe having any existence, what is in Him? In Him was life. And through that Word spoken in the beginning, before the incarnation, what happened? God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, but what was their characteristic? 
They were formless and void. There was no life and no light in them. But then God spoke through this logos. And what did he bring? Light and life. First, he brought the light and gave shape to the formless void. Then he brought the life, giving plants and animals and living creatures and ultimately man made in God's image and not just earthly life destined for and created for the purpose of eternal life. You see, the God who shared his life from man invited and called him to commune in that life eternally. And how did it come? It came through Jesus, who was the Logos, who was with God, but who also was God. You see why Jesus can proclaim, I am the resurrection and the life? He who was in the beginning eternal God that gave life to the world now has come into the world to give life to that which is dead. He who gave life to the first creation comes now to give life to the new creation. Again, Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life because he is God and God alone can give life. Now, some may say, well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, I mean, you had Elijah the prophet and, and Elisha too, through, even through his dead body, life was given to others. People were raised from the dead. And you may say, certainly God's servants, the apostles, after Jesus, did they not also raise people from the dead? They did. But how did they do it? Not through their own power, but through the delegated power that was in them through the spirit of Jesus. It was in the name of Jesus that the apostles raised the dead. But none of them said, like Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And indeed, this is confirmed in Jesus' own resurrection and in the mighty works that he did to raise from the dead. Jesus has shown, even as he declared, that he is the true God. Remember that, beloved. When you come to Jesus, you come to not just another human who's sympathetic with you and your weaknesses through his experiences. Well, that's wonderfully true. You come also to one who's powerful, who can do something and act upon that sympathy. Indeed, what a glorious truth to know that as Jesus comes to Lazarus in the tomb in John 11, that he weeps with the saints there, mourning and grieving with them at this ugly fruit of sin and death. What a wonderful thing to know that we have somebody who can have compassion on that. But what even greater to know that we have this one who not only has compassion as man, but power as God to do something about it. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life because he's God, the only source of light. But there's another way that Jesus for us is and has become the resurrection and the life. In his preexistent state as God... The eternal God, he's the only source of life. But these words here in John 11 are uttered in what we call his incarnate state. The Son of God, in the fullness of time, became man and united two natures in his one person. In these two natures, in one person, he's our mediator. In other words, resurrection and life are not something that have always, only something that have always been in him as God. But it's something that he has also attained and accomplished for us as the God-man. And that's how he speaks these words to us. Indeed, he says that as the God-man, that this resurrection and life is available through him to his people by faith in his word. How does that work out? Well, let's consider what the Bible tells us about this. 
Again, resurrection is something that Christ has obtained. He's accomplished in his flesh, having died and risen again. There's at least two ways. There's more, but we'll just think of these two ways today that the Bible speaks of this. First of all, it speaks of Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. If you look in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, there's this beautiful, really, poem that the Apostle Paul shares, which describes these Christological realities. And there, it speaks to us of Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, he's Lord of it all. He's the heir of everything. Parallel to that, as firstborn of all creation, he is also the beginning, verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does that language of firstborn mean? It means that just as he's the heir of all creation, he's also the heir and the first to be raised from the dead. In other words, he is representative of all his people who will be raised from the dead. In other words, when we look at Jesus' resurrection as the firstborn, we see the pledge and hope of our resurrection because we're united to him. Or you can consider another phrase similar to firstborn. It's first fruits. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's that mean? Well, the first fruits idea comes from the Old Testament in the festival days, which, yes, pointed to these things in Jesus, even his resurrection. You can go back and listen to our sermons in Leviticus and see how this follows all the feast days, the pattern of the life and accomplished work of Jesus for us. <coughs> the first fruits idea goes back to the fact that the first part of the harvest, in other words, the first part of that field that would sprout and grow fruit. That was to be taken and devoted especially to God. It was representative of the whole harvest. <clears throat> Just as when we give to the Lord, this principle applies as well. We give a portion of what the Lord gives us, but that is a pledge that in all that we have and all that we are, we will serve him with everything. In other words, it all belongs to the Lord. Are we going to do it directly in the gift? Or we're going to do it indirectly through the way we glorify God with what we have. Well, the same kind of thing is true of Jesus' resurrection. He's the first fruits, not just the first in order. But through him, all of God's people, in principle, obtain already resurrection. Indeed, Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus is the first fruit. In fact, in him, we can truly say that the final resurrection has already started. The first fruits of the harvest is already coming in by, in terms of our spirits being raised from the dead as we are reborn and regenerated, we see the beginning of that. But even physically, Jesus' flesh is now in heaven and we're united to him by faith and the power of resurrection, even in his very body, is present in us as well. Do you see how Jesus, not just as God, but as our incarnate redeemer, is eternally and has become for us Resurrection and life. That's what he is. And that's the desperate need that each human being in this world has to have fulfilled. You can ignore it. You can numb yourself to it by drinking or taking drugs or just you know, pouring yourself into all kinds of hedonistic living, but eventually it catches up to you. This world is filled with death and decay, but Jesus, because he's God, and because he's the one as our mediator who has accomplished his work for us, conquering death and rising from the dead, he alone for us is the resurrection and the life. 
And the question becomes, okay, how do I get that? How does that become mine? Well, that's the last point we consider how this is, becomes ours by faith. Now, again, this is the question that's asked of Martha after Jesus declares these things. You see, it's one thing to know that this is true and hear that it's true. It's another to receive it and accept it. Jesus, again, says, I'm the resurrection and the life, but then asks, do you believe this? And what's Martha's answer? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In other words, we receive these things, they become ours, this power is at work in us by faith. Well, how exactly does that work? Well, first of all, let's consider how this faith is produced. How do we move from death to life? Is it from any power in us? Well, no, because why? Well, what have we already said about man's condition in this world? We're dead. Can dead people do anything? Let's say there was a dead person lying here in the front of the church. I know it's kind of morbid, but that's what Jesus faced. How many of you would walk up to the dead man and ask him to maybe move so you can get a better look at him? Or you might say to the dead man, you know, there's a lot of people here doing a lot of work. Maybe you should get up and help us. After all, it's your funeral. No, of course you wouldn't say those things. Why? Well, because he's dead. Nobody expects a dead person to do anything because they have no life and no existence. So when we look at how it is that these things become ours, we recognize there's no power in us that can do it. There's no work that can be accomplished because spiritually speaking, we are dead. Indeed, how does it come to us not through our work, but through Christ's work? Not through our words for what can a dead man speak, but through Christ's word. Notice how this comes to Martha, how this comes to us. It comes through Jesus' words. Again, not even through beholding and seeing the event. That will come later. It's through the word. It's through the word that he imparts to Martha the hope of life, declaring with his word, I am the resurrection and the life. And notice, that's present tense. That's a reality right now. The conduit through which that life comes to you is through the word. So if you think of yourself as a dead battery that needs to be recharged, what do you got to do if you're going to recharge a dead battery? We got to put it in the charger. And if that charger is going to work, what do you got to do with the cable? You got to plug it into the wall. That's how you recharge the battery. You need a cable that links you to the source of power so that you can recharge the battery, the dead battery. Well, that's what we have through Jesus, through his spirit, and his word. Indeed, as he says earlier in John chapter 5, verses 24 to 26, through the power of that word, he can give life to the dead. How did he put it? In John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Resurrection in Jesus, in other words, is a present reality. Today, you hear the voice of Jesus. 
And when it comes to his elect people, and as it is met with faith produced by the Holy Spirit, what does it produce? It produces a resurrection. You don't believe that? Jesus made that pretty clear in John chapter 11, because, of course, he waited for Lazarus to die, his friend, and mourned his loss so that he could have this very opportunity. He came to the tomb with a stone rolled away, with a dead body laying in there. And what did he declare? Through his word and its power, he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus heard. And the one lying in his tomb rose to new life. That is an illustration, yes, of what we will have in the resurrection at the last day, but what we have now through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that's not of works. A dead man can do no works. As Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, that faith itself, by which we receive Jesus, is a gift of God. In other words, it really boils down to this. We have to embrace, yes, as Bertrand Russell clearly states, that apart from God and in our sin, we have nothing but unyielding despair. There's no hope in our works, in our efforts, in anything that we can accomplish. As he rightly said, apart from God, all of it is destined to extinction in the vast death of our solar system. Now, not the way Russell described, because ultimately what does the Bible say is going to happen to this universe? It'll be burned up in fire to make way for a new heavens and a new earth. You see, Russell was right even as he was wrong, and he's wrong even as he's right. The one hope that we have, the one logos that is the true foundation of our lives is in the Lord Jesus. How do we have that? We have that by believing in him. What exactly does that mean? Well, it starts with confessing and believing the truth of who Jesus is. It's simple. (laughs) What does she need to do to be saved? She needs to believe that Jesus is the resurrection of life and that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and lives shall never die. You believe that about Jesus. You believe he has that power, and you simply say, yes, Lord, I believe that. I trust that. I know that. Now, people might say, well, that's it? Yeah, really, that's it. (laughs) It's a gift of grace. You receive it. You're dead. You come to life. People unbind you the way Lazarus unbound, and then you live your life. Now, does people say, well, that's it? Then you don't have to live a life of good works. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the seed of everything else God desires of you as a Christian goes back to that simple point, that you believe, that you embrace for yourself that Jesus is resurrection and that he is life, and that comes to you through his word. It's very simple. We simply say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I've walked in death and in misery. I don't want to sin anymore. I trust in you. Give me your Holy Spirit. Make me one who lives in the power of resurrection. Join me to your resurrection body, the church. Fill my heart with thankfulness that I may serve you in the power of your resurrection life. Apart from that hope, there's nothing. There's hopelessness and there's despair. But in that hope, we have a firm foundation to serve Christ and to love him because in him we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, how we thank you for Jesus' words that he is the resurrection and the life. We thank you for the testimony of Scripture 
which so consistently demonstrates Jesus' consistent word to this effect, but also for his mighty works, both in the raising of Lazarus and others and in his own resurrection from the dead, that he is indeed the first fruits who have fallen asleep. We thank you for the testimony of the apostles and others who witnessed the physical body of Jesus, not only dying, but raised from the dead. We thank you for this sure and sole hope that we have in this world, that we can have life through our Savior. May we have encouragement today to walk in your love and in your light, and may we know the power of him who is our resurrection and our life. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.